episode. My mom still likes to joke that she thought for certain that I was going to end up being the boy in the bubble. You remember that 70s, 70s movie? How does the boy in the bubble go from this? And really couldn't go outside in the summer all that much. To becoming a mountain guide, a wilderness instructor, and the first director of Colorado's outdoor recreation industry office. That's coming up on Mountain Meister. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. I'm your host, Ben Shank, and you're listening to Mountain Meister. On the other end, we welcome Luis Benitez. Hello, Luis. Hello, Ben. How are you? Life is good. Congratulations on being named a Mountain Meister. You're telling me you're kind of excited. I am. I'm a, we were just talking before we started taping that I'm a little giddy. It's like calling into your favorite radio show forever and ever and, and finally getting to connect. I've been a, a longtime listener and a longtime fan, so this is pretty fun. That makes me smile. Uh, Louise is a renowned mountain guide who has taken his lessons that he learned from that climbing and applied them to business uh, for his guiding. He summited the seven summits 32 times, with Everest being six of them. Uh, he was also recently named the first director of the new Colorado Outdoor Recreation Industry Office. Outdoor recreation is a $14 billion industry for Colorado. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, depending on re- what report you look at, okay. <laughs> um, and, and thanks for making me blush there, Ben. That's that's a really nice intro yeah it uh there's a couple of different places that we pull our numbers from um to sort of talk about the depth and the width of the outdoor industry in colorado so if you look at um outdoor industry associations numbers um we're about 14 billion in consumer spending if you look at the scorp report which is the outdoor recreational report that went a little bit deeper Mm -hmm. um looked at a couple of different things and also included some stuff you know that oia didn't you know say what you will about golf but that was kind of lumped into that study um, a couple, along with a couple of other sports, their report says that we're over $30 billion wow. in spending in the state. So the bottom line is that there are a lot of billions with a B um, in the state for the industry. And it's, I mean, it's truly a part of the economic engine that makes Colorado thrive. Absolutely. So how's the, how's the job going? It's your new it's awesome. job, right? It's, I mean, it literally... So my wife and I live in Eagle, Colorado, small little town um, up, oh, yeah. up mm-hmm. in the mountains. And we love it. And we used to sit around and giggle and say, you know, we can't even conceive of the job that would get either one of us to remotely consider leaving this town and leaving the mountains. And sure enough, that's when the governor decided to call. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. It's been a lot of fun for the first 90 days. Um, and it's also been a lot of hard work asking a lot of critical questions for what comes next for the industry in Colorado. You know, it's, there's been a lot of things that that I think we're going to have to pay attention to uh, in the near near term and long term future of the state um, and of the industry at large in the country. Very cool. Look forward to talking about that. First, I want to talk about your passion for the outdoors, which all seems to have started with asthma. Mm. Yep. You know, I I was uh, I was a pretty sick little kid. Uh, my mom still likes to joke that. She thought for certain that I was going to end up being the boy in the bubble. You remember that 70s, <laughs> 70s movie with the... I definitely don't, but I've heard of it. <laughs> the, kid, the, kid, uh, the kid that lived in the little plastic bubble in his bedroom. Um, I, I had pretty debilitating asthma and allergies when I was a kid um, and really couldn't go outside in the summer all that much. Oh. 
So the time that I could go outside and play was in the winter when the allergen content was really low. Um, and it, it just basically became the time of the year that I looked forward to the most. The colder it was, the happier I was. And, uh, you know, my friends like to chuckle that that translated well into getting deeper into alpinism and, and mountaineering. But, uh, you know, it was a really hard way to grow up. I spent a lot of time in hospitals and um, a lot of time inside um, doing a lot of reading because that's one of the things that, that I love to do. And the, the stories that were my favorite were, were definitely the, the classics, you know, reading about, more, you know, from Maurice Herzog about Annapurna, reading about, you know, the first American expedition on Everest. Um, the first, uh, you know, Sir Edmund Hillary's trip on Everest and, you know, all these different stories from all these different places all over the world. And so the cultures intrigued me. The mountains definitely intrigued me. Um, and from a very early age, because of those stories, I was hooked. Was all this captivating reading uh, based around cold weather sports because of that asthma? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. You know, because that's one of the things that... You know, when I became an outward bound instructor years later and we'd build Quonsets um, and Quigloos in snow caves with students on winter courses, you know, for me, it, it was a very visceral experience because that was one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to go out and dig a little snow cave. And, you know, when other kids would go camping or ask to set up the tent um, in the backyard um, with their families in the summertime, you know, I used to ask my parents, could you please set up a tent in the backyard in the middle of January <laughs> and, and let me camp outside then? So being able to sleep outdoors and, and to do all of those things, um, yeah, I definitely. I, there was a, a deep association with, you know, the high alpine environment and that world. And, you know, I have very clear memories of trying to be that rough, rough mountaineer um, while sleeping in the backyard. <laughs> Um, with an extension cord with the heating blanket from the house um, in the in the middle of winter um, and imagine that I was high, high on an alpine peak. Well, eventually you did get to some higher peaks, started guiding in Ecuador. Were you born in Ecuador? No, I was born in the States, okay. but my father's from Ecuador. Mm -hmm. So I spent a, a large portion of my childhood going back and forth. So that's really where I got, um, you know, the, the love of mountaineering really was seeded. You know, Ecuadorians have this kind of unique cultural um, norm that their idea of a fun weekend out on a Saturday afternoon is to grab grandma and grandpa, all the aunts, uncles, and cousins, pile into their cars, drive to a national park with some of these high peaks. And for me, it was Cotopaxi, mm -hmm. which ironically enough is now an active volcano. Um, oh, when you were guiding, it wasn't? No, no, oh, it was okay. semi, well, semi-active. It okay. was still steaming, but um, it wasn't exploding like it has been the past couple uh -huh. of months. But you'd park and you'd grab a picnic lunch and you'd, you know, you'd park at 14,000 feet and then you'd hike to the hut at 15,000 feet. You'd have these wicked altitude headaches, nauseous. You eat your bologna sandwich with the family in this cold, high alpine hut. And then you'd toddle back down to the parking lot, get back in the car and drive back to the city. That's kind of a Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian family's, you know, idea of a fun Saturday afternoon together. Uh, and, and that was really my, my first exposure to, to our tribe. Um, it, you know, I knew after seeing the mountaineers in that hut and hanging out down there, I, I didn't quite know how to connect the dots, but I knew that if I wanted to, to be part of this community, that that was where it was going to happen. So I got my start guiding down there. And as you know, you know, in Ecuador, you can get higher than Denali, um, yeah. you know, all in the span of a, a long week. So it's, you know, massive altitude in a very short amount of time. And it was really my training ground um, for, for learning about how to become 
how to become a mountaineer. So a lot of companies bring their clients down there to train for larger international trips. So at a very young age, I was exposed to, to, you know, international guiding companies bringing their, their clients down and, and got to hang out with some, some of my heroes. Very young. How young? Oh boy! First time I did code epoxy, I was fourteen. Wow! So I uh, vomited the whole way up and vomited <laughs> the whole way down, um, and I'll never forget. You know, every bump riding back to Quito, you know, we were in the car. Just I had such a bad headache. Just it hurt. Everything hurt. But you know, the the clear realization for me was I spent so much of my time uh, sick as a kid, being sheltered and coddled, that I actually. You know, and I'm sure you've talked to other alpinists that enjoy this, you know, feeling, you know, the pain actually felt good because it meant that I was alive mm. and that I was actually pushing into a zone that I had never experienced before just from being so sheltered, um, so young. So, you know, it started to outgrow the asthma, started to grow, outgrow the allergies and, and really, you know, started spending as much time in the mountains as I could. Yeah, that's a cool contrast to experience getting sheltered away from the elements and then getting thrown into them. I, I was lucky. You know, my parents were, were supportive of it, and it was a great way to grow up. Mm-hmm. So fast forward a little bit. What's it like to guide a blind person up Mount Everest? <laughs> oh, I knew you were going to ask me about that one. You know, Eric and I are still really good friends. He lives here in, in Colorado still. And, you know, the one thing I can say about that trip is that we're all still good friends. And that trip was in, in 2001. And, you know, I was working for Outward Bound here in Colorado at the time, and I had been getting into, uh, you know, high-altitude guiding um, overseas, working for Alpine Ascents International out of Seattle. Um, so it was, you know, slowly moving up the food chain, up the ladder, if you will, um, in the guiding community. And I had met Eric through mutual friends, and obviously the dream, uh, the dream was always to try to get to Everest. And, you know, when we met, he was pretty clear about the goal of, of going to Everest. It wasn't about showboating. It wasn't about, you know, trying to, to grandstand. He was sick and tired of being told what he was and wasn't capable of. And immediately when he shared that with me, uh, you know, we were talking about my childhood. I flashbacked to being a kid. Nope, can't do this. Nope, can't do that. Nope, can't go outside. Um, you're just not capable of doing it. And it, that that message it really resonated with me. And when he asked if I would be willing to be a part of the team, I mean, what do you say when somebody drops the dream shot in your lap? Of course, you, you say yes. But I remember driving home from that, uh, from that lunch and a couple of things, you know, dawned on me after I so enthusiastically said yes. You know, A, I had just agreed to climb Everest with the blind guy. And, and B, it had never been done before. And at the time, I was 28. And, you know, so it, it started to hit me, you know, in the face of all that adversity, was was this even possible? And, you know, we had planned to do, quote unquote, and I chuckle now, a warm-up peak uh, in the Himalayas the year before going to Everest. And we chose Amada Blam, which <laughs> arguably is one of the more technical mountains in the Kumbu, um, but bit off way more than we could chew for that warm-up peak, especially working with Eric. But the thing that it did do is it allowed us to galvanize our team, which was a Colorado-based team. Um, and allowed us to really focus on um, deeply intense technical systems working with Eric, trying to figure out how to cross um, hazardous terrains at a high altitude. So we got a lot out of that, even if we didn't get a summit. You know, and at that point, the rest of the climbing community were really kind of poo-pooing what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, We we heard from a lot of different angles, um, 
you know, basically you're going to kill him. And not only are you going to kill him, but as the mountain guide that intentionally went to the Himalayas with a blind person and got him killed, you're also going to destroy your career because who's ever going to want to go climbing with the guide that intentionally killed the blind guy? So you're going to kill And these him. are from, this is from professionals in the mountain community, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. These are, these are from folks that, you know, you know, deeply known in the mountaineering community. You know, and they were telling us you're going to kill him and you're going to destroy your career because nobody's ever going to work with want to work with you again because you know you you walked into this eyes wide open. So um, the neat thing about all of that is it just it kind of made our focus stronger because it it was one of those things that it, it was very it had very little to do with us and a lot more to do with with Eric's goal and what he wanted to do. And I think to this day we're we're all still pretty proud of that. But I guess. Uh this is probably a question for Eric and how, how he actually does it. But for you as the guide, how do you actually guide a blind oh, well, person? <laughs> that's, so we used to call ourselves, you know, his, his, uh, secret service, you know, he, he's got, uh, uh, trekking poles that were built, um, special for him to kind of add into sections. So instead of three, um, there were four. So it's like these crab sticks huh. when he's walking around. Um, and then we would use a bear bell, um, that, I mean, the guy's got sonar, so he can tell right. off that noise from the bear bell, you know, where the drop-offs are, where the trail is. There was always one person in front of him and one person behind him, um, you know, only roped up on technical terrain. But other than that, you know, he was moving on his own. And, you know, he, he is a climber, you know, he's a mountaineer. He didn't just wake up one day and decide, hey, it's a good idea to go to Mount Everest, you know. So there were days, you know, we'd be walking through storms when visibility was awful and, and we couldn't see. And we're like, mm, I think camp's over there. Um, and then he'd say, no, nope, no, it's not. It's over there, you know, because he's memorized wow. patterns and where we're going and what we're doing. You know, you roll into camp after dark and we're fumbling for our headlamps and, you know, putting on layers and trying to get ready to set up the tent. And Eric's already pulling the tent parts out of his pack and <laughs> starting to set up the tent because he's practiced it a million times, not being able to see. He doesn't need a headlamp wow. to get started. So, you know, he was a significant contributor to the whole process. And there were um, eight of us, and, you know, there was always two people on, and then everybody else rotating around. You know, when it got labor-intensive, if you will, is when we hit technical terrain, because you'd have to really define where every step and every handhold was. And so we developed systems like any other climber would. You know, instead of having to do these long, drawn-out sentences by saying, well, if you move your left foot four inches up and one inch over, then you'll be at the right spot, maybe a quarter inch to your right. You know, we'd come up with code, you know, shin high, knee banger, thigh high, hip high, you know, and then we'd use a clock system, 12 o'clock being straight off your nose, one, two, three, four, five, all the way around to 12 uh, to, to sort of define where the movements were. Because when you started getting higher and higher, you're more and more concerned about oxygen conservation and not talking to uh-huh, that. Right. Wow, that's that's fascinating. That would be really interesting to, um, to I don't know, just watch. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's still to this day, you know, when we go cragging or, or you know, just rock climbing or hiking or anything else – you know, the systems that we built with him, you know, he still uses yeah. to this day. You said you got a lot of pushback from the community. It's, it's probably cool now that it worked out. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It's just like it's very easy to look back on it and say we were so laser focused on what we wanted and we became so motivated. Uh, but the other way of looking at it is that 
these professionals are saying don't do it, it could have very easily not worked out in your favor. Absolutely. I mean, it um, when we were actually on Everest, uh, and Eric talks about this a little bit um, in his book that he wrote about the expedition, um, there were other teams that were intentionally choosing not to climb on days that we were climbing because they, they just wanted to stay away from the inevitable accident that they were sure was going to happen. Um, and, and they were pretty public about it too, that, you know, we were grandstanding it we, we were there and that just stay out of the way. Something's definitely going to happen. And, and, you know, I think for all of us who, you know, most of us were, were young at the time, um, you know, it was starting our career. We didn't have anything to lose. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just about risk at all, you know, hop into that adversity, you know, who cares what happens. It was more about, you know, that, that this is something way bigger than any of us summiting Everest. And we made a promise to ourselves on Amida Blom um, quietly as a team because we didn't summit that mountain. And we were, you know, we were in a good position to actually go for it. But it was really clear that because of the objective hazard, it wasn't safe to take Eric um, much above Camp 2 into that gully leading up to Camp 3. And so, you know, we kind of said, you know, well, great, we could park Eric at base camp and go for it. But what's that saying? Mm. You know, what does that what does that really mean for us as a team? And what does that show about our leadership with this project? And so we quietly made a promise to ourselves that if Eric didn't summit, none of us were going either. Mm. And, And for all of us, you know, when you talk about the risk just within the community, for us, you know, this was the dream shot for a lot of us. This was the first time or, you know, second or third time to the Himalayas, but the first time on Everest. And, you know, if, if we were willing to say that out loud and actually believe in it, um, that's really what, what galvanized it for us. It wasn't really what the community was saying. It was like, you know what? If you don't go, we're not going to go either. It seems like the, like the, te- the team work and the, the leadership is what you really like about climbing these peaks. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people often ask, you know, why, why would you, why would you choose to go back to some of these high mountains time and time again? You know, and obviously when you get beyond the, well, that was my job for a number of years. Um, I was a director of operations for adventure consultants based out of New Zealand for a long time and, and their chief guide, you know, beyond that, it, I really started to to nerd out on, on the science of building effective teams and, and building effective strategies and what leadership really looked like in adverse situations. And for me, that really kind of came from being an outward bound instructor for a number of years and, and really teaching some of those things. But it also, you know, it went a little deeper because as you know, for a lot of these peaks and a lot of these climbs, it requires a little bit of discretionary income. And as a guide, you know, I'd often be facing a client who could be the CEO of a fortune 50 company multiple companies and, and I'm the boss mm-hmm. and the buck, you know, stops with me. And, and so how do you work within that leadership paradigm and, and what does that really look like? How does it, you know, affect the, the growth and the challenge of not only the expedition, but you know, your own leadership and communication style. And so a lot of those clients turned into really great friends and mentors. And, you know, after trips, they'd say, Luis, would you come to my company and talk to my executive mm-hmm. team about leadership? Being a young mountain guide, I'd ask, you know, well, what do you mean? Like, I'd, we just climbed a mountain, we were successful, it was great, and, you know, we got along. Is that what you mean? And they would say very clearly, you know, Luis, you said you led a diverse group of people towards a very distinct goal with a really tight timeline and a very strict budget with an international staff in this highly 
you know, adversity driven environment. If that's not leading a team, you know, or, or running a company, I don't know what is. That started me down this, this path of really exploring organizational development and leadership development um, in, in high intensity situations. There are some people, though, that think that that CEO shouldn't be on the mountain if he or she isn't experienced enough. What's, what's your feeling about taking maybe more corporate trips to the high Himalayan peaks? You know, I definitely agree that, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to be ready, especially for the bigger stuff. I think the incident in 1996 on Everest, you know, of which tons of books have been written and movies have been done about, um, that, you know, that changed the game. It professionalized the high altitude guiding community. No longer could you just show up and write a check and, and decide you want to go to Everest. So there's a bit of a path and a process that a lot of the bigger companies hold to um, to actually let you go. I would argue that those people, those corporate clients, if you will, really helped us professionalize the industry. Mm. They were the ones that came with business acumen. I mean, I was part of dozens of conversations with CEOs and high-level executives on peaks all over the world, and they would sit down and willingly share their business acumen with us and say, listen, in the context of a business plan, you need to look at this, this, and this, and you, you know, five years out, you need to be looking at that, and 10 years out, you need to be looking at that. And so when people ask, you know, well, where did the professionalism of the outdoor industry come from? Hmm. It really came from that relationship. It, a, a lot of those relationships are what, you know, spawned that a, a lot of that industry. The Seven Summits industry, you know, came from Dick Bass and Frank Wells, the yeah. two guys that kind of cooked that whole thing up. And, and David Bashirs, you know, a celebrated cinematographer and filmmaker was their chief guide for that whole project. So, you know, there's a, there's a deep relationship there. And I think if it's, if it's utilized in the right way, um, it helps both sides of the coin. And what about the even previous Meisters that we've had on this show that say, if you climb a high altitude peak with supplementary oxygen, you're bringing the mountain down to your level? Yeah. I mean, and I would say, you know, I've heard some of those podcasts with, you know, friends of mine and I, we've, I've gotten into this conversation a lot, especially with, you know, the advancements in some of the systems and technologies, you know, back in the early two thousands, you know, it was a soft mask from Russia with the Russian bottles. I mean, it, you might as well have just stuck a hose up your nose and, and hope for a little bit of transference of the oxygen that was bleeding out of the bottle. It, you know, the systems weren't all that professional, but now with, the top-out mask, I mean, you might as well be wearing a fighter jet mask. So the systems have really, have really come a long way in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, but I, I will say that from a guiding perspective um, and, and being up there, you know, you can have all the oxygen you want on your back. You still have to put one foot in front of the other. You still have to strategically figure out what it is that you're doing and how you're doing it to stay safe. Um, and you still have to show up with the tenacity and the courage to actually get the job done. So, you know, talking about levels, does oxygen lower it to here or lower it to there? You know, definitely that argument could be made. But from a guiding perspective, to stay sharp with your clients, there is no excuse not to be on it. Um, you know, and, and from a client perspective, you know, that, that's just that margin of safety um, that, that really helps you know, people get the job done and stay clear headed in the process. So I think from a personal endeavor perspective, I've known quite a few clients that have kind of come through the seven summit circuit, gone on to climb other peaks, 
Um, and only after 10 or 15 years of being in the game, if you will, um, as a client, but at a seriously high level of experience, they've started to ask the question and say things like, you know, I'd like to go back to CHOU and I'd like to do it without oxygen because I want to try for that next level of challenge. And that's an appropriate place to show up and try it that way. Um, and then I've been asked the question, all right, great. Well, so when your client be without, are you going to stay with it? Um, and stay on oxygen? And my answer is absolutely, mm-hmm. because it's my job to be as clear-headed as possible to help that support that client in what they want to do. So it becomes less about me reaching the summit, however many times you, I get to, and much more about what their journey and their experience is. Hearing this passion about guiding, one would probably be surprised to hear that you took a break from it. Um, yeah. 2006. I actually, I, I wasn't really aware of this whole I guess, a really disturbing event. Uh, I've just been reading about it recently. Can you talk a little bit about what happened at Choyo U? Yeah, I mean, it it definitely, um, it was the intersection of of, of a lot of things in in my life. Uh, Ironically enough, I was just talking to Tommy Caldwell last night um, about his experience with, um, you know, being held captive in the Aksu region back in 2001, um, you know, by, by terrorists. And in 2006, I was climbing on Cho'oyu, and obviously Cho'oyu is right on the border of Tibet and Nepal, and there's a low pass called the Nangpala, where Tibetans utilize that pass to basically flee from Tibet, because Chinese um, definitely um, rule Tibet at this point. They use the pass to flee from Tibet, cross through um, Nepal to reach Dharamsala in India, um, where the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan government in exile resides. And so, you know, working on Choyu over the years, you're aware that this pass is used by refugees. You see a lot of traffic going back and forth over the pass. So, you know, that's, it's kind of a, an everyday occurrence when you're in base camp. Um, but one day when, when we were in base camp, sitting in the dining tent, and we heard something outside that sounded like firecrackers. And I definitely heard that before. People, you know, bring little firecrackers and party poppers to to base camp and didn't really think anything of it. But then, you know, we heard a machine gun cut loose outside and it was very, obviously a very distinct sound and we knew what it was. Um, And so we all piled out of the tent and we saw uh, a group of Tibetan refugees running uphill up the pass at 18,000 feet and a group of Chinese border patrol soldiers lined up at the base of the pass and all this being about a quarter mile away from base camp, just basically kneeling down, taking aim and shooting at this group of fleeing refugees. And, you know, seeing that and then in the same instant turning around and looking at the trail coming into base camp and another group of soldiers were streaming into base camp, kind of peeling off into everybody's camps, um, looking for um, refugees hiding in tents or um, underneath uh, storage barrels. They, they were ransacking base camp looking for refugees um, when the shooting was going on. And so all this was sort of happening at one time. And it's, it's not something that you ever expect to see in the mountains or ever expect to be a part of. But, you know, you, you go into to crisis mode at that point in your head. And so for me, my primary responsibility was obviously to my clients. So at that moment, we were already packed and ready to go for a carry up to camp two that day. And what I said was, you know, let's, let's, let's go, let's, let's go and do what we planned on doing and head up to camp too. Cause clearly this is an international incident. Mm. The world's going to know what happened by the time we get back down. And, you know, we've got, you know, young 18, 19 year old Chinese soldiers in base camp with itchy trigger fingers. Let's it's, let's get out of here. Let's, let's head up the mountain. 
So, you know, we all headed up the hill with really heavy hearts. And, you know, it's, it's uh, an immense shock to see something like that happen um, and to, to be a part of it. And, you know, when we were at Camp 2, we were already acclimatized. And, you know, if you know anything about Choi U, a lot of teams actually launch their summit bids from, from Camp 2, um, depending on if you're on oxygen or not. And we had a really small group. And at that point, the consensus was when we reached Camp 2 that, you know, it, given what had happened, let's get this done. Let's go home. We're ready to go. Um, let's, let's shoot from Camp 2 as opposed to putting in Camp 3. Let's just go from here. Um, at that point that evening, one of our clients got sick. Um, so we split the team. One guy took off for the summit group and I brought, um, our sick client back to base camp thinking, you know, there's a ton of satellite phone technology in base camp. The world's going to know about what happened. And I come down to base camp to find that, uh, no, uh, nobody had called it in. How many other people were at base camp? How many other groups? Uh, About 200, 250 people were at base camp. Um, and you know, and I knew full well that at least seven teams that had satellite phones and laptops and you know communication technology that you, you easily could have you know reported the incident. And in asking around when we got back down to base camp, well, what what's preventing anybody from talking about it? You know, the general consensus was this isn't our problem, this isn't our country. We don't want to lose our permits. Keep your head down, keep your mouth shut. It, this isn't for us to worry about. And you know it. It brought up a pretty hard, hard line of questioning for me internally. I I wrestled with that for for a night and and really thought about you know what what the community, the mountaineering community up to that point, had really meant to me. All the lessons that I had learned about um, in the mountains with friends and with clients over the years, and I deeply reflected back on my time with Outward Bound and everything that we would teach students about. You know, you have to do the best you can with what you have. And you have to stand up for what's right. And, and the thing that struck me when I woke up the next morning was if I don't do anything about this, everything that I had ever taught any client or any student would have been a lie. And so I luckily enough had buddies at the time that were running Explorers Web, um, which was kind of one of the first, first online blogging um, websites that sort of covered expeditions all over the world. And they were really, really good friends um, at the time. And I called him on the satellite phone. I said, listen, um, something's happened. I'm, I'm going to write a story. You're going to have zero time to fact check it. You're going to have to trust me, and you're going to have to put it up as is. Now, you know, nowhere else in the media community would you be able to say that unless you had a really deep personal relationship. And to their credit, um, they, they posted the story about the shooting. And all hell broke loose in oh basically because everybody that had satellite – communication technology obviously logged into explorers web to see what was going on and they saw this story about the shooting and i had kept myself and my name and my company's name out of it because we were still in tibet Mm -hmm. you know so clearly it was a safety issue and people know it was you well the scuttlebutt in base camp was who did this who did this they're putting everybody's permits at risk who was this who did this um and and i finally had to stand up and say it was me i'm i'm the one that did it and I'll never forget, you know, after I, I said that, um, an expedition leader from another company came to my base camp and said, you know, the Chinese have your name. Um, they're probably going to come down here looking for you. Um, if I was you, I, basically what he said was, if I was you, I'd get out of town because it's, it's well, you know, whatever happens, is not, it's not going to end well. <laughs> and I, uh, I, you know, the Thoraya satellite phones have this great um, latitude-longitude. You know, you're able to text your latitude-longitude. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it has this great feature. And I remember calling Explorers Web back at the time, Tom and Tina, the owners. I said, you know, it's, it's going down. Words broke. They know it's, uh, you know, they know the one that they, they know that I broke the story. Um, I'm just going to start texting you my latitude, longitude. I'm leaving base camp here pretty soon. Just kind of follow me. And if you don't hear from me, just know that, you know, something's going on. So it, it was this, uh, it, it, it was an exodus out of Tibet. Um, clients finally caught me and, and I actually, you know, we got back to Kathmandu and I, I checked into a different hotel under a phony name. Wow. Um, my whole goal at that moment was to get back to the airport, get back to the States because, you know, I, I definitely dropped myself right in the middle of it. Uh-huh. And I get this call in my hotel room and nobody knew where I was at that point. But I don't know if you've ever um, done any podcast about Elizabeth Hawley. Um, yeah. Liz mm-hmm. Hawley, you know, in, in Kathmandu, she's, you know, sort of the, the gatekeeper of all expeditions that come to the Himalayas. And it was Miss Hawley on the phone. I figured, of course, if anybody knew where I'd be hiding out in Kathmandu, it'd be Miss Hawley. And she said, listen, I know you don't want anybody to know where you are, and that's fine, and I'm keeping that quiet. Um, but there's somebody that I think you need to talk to. Um, her name's Kate Saunders. She's with the International Campaign for Tibet. The refugees that, that you saw up on the pass have actually made it to Kathmandu. And Kate's wondering if you'd like to actually go to the refugee center and meet these people that you're speaking out for, that you spoke out for. And so, you know, very much a cloak and dagger experience. They, uh, they picked me up in a SUV at my hotel, took me to the refugee center. And when I got there, um, it was just a bunch of kids. It was literally a bunch of kids that were being sent by their parents to receive a Tibetan education in Dharamsala. And, you know, I was sitting in this room with the, the, the refugee center director and these kids, and he walked me through the medical center showing me pictures of frostbite that these refugees had experienced over the years trying to, you know, mm. escape from Tibet and make it to Dharamsala. And, you know, I talked to Kate after visiting the refugee center, which was emotionally really hard. She said, you know, you have a choice this point you have a choice you could continue on with what you do you know probably get a little hand slap from the mountaineering community for speaking out and you know you can continue on your life trajectory um or you could continue to tell this story and, and help us hmm. and you know again i kind of reflected back at that moment on you know for me there really was no choice you know i couldn't i couldn't look at this at a community that i love so much that for me, it had really high morals and, and high, you know, a high, highly finely tuned value system and not jump into this conversation. So at that point, you know, I went from being the chief guide at Adventure Consultants um, and the director of operations. I, I made a very conscious decision to step away from the international guiding community and focus on more leadership development and organizational development within the outdoor industry, thinking, you know, the, the thing that would impact you know, kind of interacting and engaging in that incident a different way would have been the leadership for all those guiding companies to stand up and say, you know what, this is actually the right thing to do. So when I asked myself what would be the most effective way to combat that mentality, it would be to get into exploring how to grow and develop that leadership trait um, within the industry. Do you think that an incident similar to this has, has happened and maybe has been covered up? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I know for a fact. The rest of this story is available through our Play Director package. It includes this. If the Dalai Lama's special envoy calls you and says that the Dalai Lama wants to meet you, what are you supposed to say? 
mtnmeister.com slash support. Click on the Play Director package, $20. All right, so today's job, we actually we have some questions from our listeners, one of whom you know, I believe, Justin Knowles, a.k.a. Technology Hiker. Yeah, yeah. Um, so regarding the Colorado outdoor recreation industry, uh, it seems like a, a very healthy industry, but what needs to happen going forward in order to sustain that health? Well, it's, it's a healthy industry. Um, but I will say that, um, it, you can, you can get to a place with, with any industry where it's, it's loved to death, if you will. Um, uh. in Colorado, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Colorado 14ers initiative, great nonprofit here focuses on, you know, trail maintenance and, and stewardship on all of our 14ers um, in the state. They just came out with a 14er report card that basically says $24 million are needed to repair wow. and maintain for, you know, a certain amount of time, all the trails that are on our 14ers. So that's, you know, a resource that's getting loved to death. Um, and, you know, when you start to talk about different sectors within the outdoor industry, you know, it's not necessarily just about money, but it's also just about connections and, you know, who is responsible for what, how do we help this grow? So from an economic development standpoint and this office at the state level, you know, one of the things we're paying attention to is, you know, if you're here for profit or a nonprofit, um, you know, if you're struggling, how can we help? And if you're growing and you're successful, how can we help you scale? You know, in a lot of small towns across Colorado, are really trying to figure out from a marketing and outreach perspective, you know, how they want to be branded, how they want to be defined. Um, you know, and that's everything from Montrose to Colorado Springs to Fort Collins to Eagle to Grand Junction. You know, they're, they're all asking the same question, which I think is a great question to ask. If you look at Ogden, Utah, um, you know, Mayor Cardwell out there, he, had, he was great. He had a really specific goal of saying, you know, we want to be, you know, a, a, a place where outdoor industry companies come and they – they locate here for the lifestyle as well as the access to a rail yard for shipping and receiving, you know, cheap square footage for warehouse space. Um, you know, he built a great story. And so when people ask me, hey, you know, what about what Ogden did? You know, what I'm lucky enough to get to share is, you know, we've got 10 or 11 Ogdens in Colorado. Yeah, all the right. towns I just mentioned that have an amazing list of resources. So I think now for the first time, um, Colorado starting to build that story, starting to tell that story um, on a much deeper level um, because what you're really talking about is rural economic development, but you're also talking about the lifestyle that brings people to Colorado. They just want to be a part of it whether you're in the industry or not. So we have to pay attention to some of those things moving forward. You know, what's the conservation and stewardship look like? But then also what's our story? What's the story that we're trying to build um, for the state and, and for the industry at large? Yeah, very good. Good point. Uh, Joyce wonders what is being done to encourage racial, racial diversity in the outdoors industry and accessibility for lower income families, particularly youth. That is a great question. Um, well, you know, obviously being Latino myself and growing up in a multicultural family, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to be part of a family that was, you know, deeply invested in the outdoors. So I was lucky, you know, but when it comes to diversity, um, within our community, especially here in Colorado, where there is a large component of, you know, the, the Chicano, Hispanic, Latino population um, here in the state, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a succession plan for our industry. So, you know, I ask people all the time, you know, what's your succession plan? Who's going to replace you 
um, when you're done, what's their demographic going to be? So, you know, I think the outreach is super important, but beyond the outreach, we really have to talk about what the jobs look like in the industry for folks as well. Mm. You know, I, I think that there's, you know, significant places where we can start to grow that conversation. You know, you talk to parks and wildlife here in the state and they're, they're hurting for, for rangers and, and, you know, wanting to start different ranger programs, junior ranger programs to start encouraging people to build that bridge and build that divide, you know, and there's obviously always going to be programs like Outward Bound, Big City Mountaineers, you know, all of who are housed here in Colorado. That's how robust our community is. So I think that question of diversity is being asked in the state. And I think we're, we're on a really good path to keep a focus on that. Um, you know, I was just part of this festival here in Denver, the Latino Eco Festival, which Irene Villar, who's an amazing woman, that's her whole goal is to get together Latinos to talk about conservation and stewardship. And, you know, a lot of people just don't know that gatherings like that exist. So part of my job is to raise the visibility of, of some of these processes to, to make sure that people know what's going on and that we're really focused on it. So, you know, it, it'll always continue to be a part of point of conversation. It will always continue to be something that we need to focus on. But then I also think it's going to need to be something that, you know, we, we need to get the beyond the, oh, we'll help you be a part of this. We want to recruit you to be a part of this. We need to make it attractive enough to, for people want to be a part of this. Right, and right. I think we can. And, and I think we really started down that path, which it's going to be exciting to see how things progress. Two good questions there, two good answers. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question to one of our Meisters, subscribe to our Play Director Package. That's at mtnmeister.com slash support. Uh, are you allowed to give a gear recommendation now that you're a state employee, Louis? <laughs> oh, boy. Let's see. Um, you know, I've never really been asked that question, Ben. That's a good one. Well, that, well that we had favoritism. We, I don't uh, yeah, we had uh, a park ranger, Shelton Johnson, on the show, and he was not allowed uh, to give a gear recommendation. So I don't want to uh, pressure you into anything. You know, well, let me tell you what I'm excited about. Okay, that. that's good. Um, you know, and the reason why I can probably share that is because it's a Colorado company, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about, you know, uh, what Goal Zero and, and Big Agnes are doing with some of their tents. Um, you know, as LED technology has sort of advanced and, and gotten lighter and, and more transportable, and, you know, it's it's going beyond the, the headlamp and the backpack for for backcountry trips. I think they've really started to explore this intersection. And I know it won like gear of the year award, I think with outside um, the, the tent that they've got that integrates uh, the led lighting in the tent. I just, I think that's the coolest thing I've seen in a really long time where you get to basically show up back to your backcountry home from a peak climb or whatever you're doing and, and literally click on the lights. Right. right? Like who would have ever thought you don't need to carry, you know, a lantern for your tent and a headlamp that it's integrated into your tent. So, you know, that, that disruptive innovation here in Colorado, you know, I see that from all kinds of different companies. You know, it's, it, it's, it's really neat to see these things growing and changing. You know, the stand-up paddleboard industry, you know, 10 years ago, people would have said for downriver travel on a stand-up paddleboard, there's no way. Now we have all these amazing companies in Colorado that focus on it and do a really great job. So, you know, the, those intersections of technology and, and disruptive innovation with gear manufacturers, um, I, just, I think that's a really exciting thing to watch as it grows. Very good. What you're excited about on your Meister profile page, mtnmeister.com. And finally, Louise, who would you like to hear as the next person on the show? 
Oh, I like that. That's a good question. You know, I you got to get Jake Norton. He he's kind of the quiet diplomat in the outdoor industry, and he's an amazing photographer. Um, just a, a, I call him the, the the elder statesman, even though he's we're the same age. So I'm probably dating myself. You know, he he's really speaks up for for water issues at a global level. Um, he's an amazing photographer. He's an amazing spokesperson for the Nepali community. Um, you know, speaks pretty darn fluent Nepali from working there um, and living there. Uh, he's just an amazing guy. So, Jake, this is a call out to you. Uh, you know, Ben, go get him. Keep an ear out for Jake Norton on a future episode of Mountain Meister. Uh, Louise, I'm going to Peru in April, and I'm starting to learn a little bit of Spanish. Um, gracias for joining <laughs> me on Mountain Meister. Uh, uh, muchísimas gracias a todo, Ben. Thank you. My Spanish has since gotten just a touch better since we recorded that episode. Thanks, Luis, for joining us. Check out his Meister profile page for any relevant resources that we chatted about today. Uh, If you have any resources for me to learn Spanish, let me know. Ben at mtnmeister.com. Right now I'm using uh, Duolingo, another Spanish app, Google Translate, and another podcast called Coffee Break Spanish with Mark and Kara. If you need to learn Spanish, check out Coffee Break Español. That's all for me. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. If you're looking for another outdoors podcast with more of an industry focus, check out OIA's Audio Outdoorist. I'm helping them and hosting that podcast. Go check it out. Until next time, I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.